Several years ago, my husband and I went to a conference in the mountains of North Carolina where we encountered a man named Frank Schaefer, the son of a prominent evangelical theologian. Frank has spent much of his adult life differentiating his own views from his father's fundamentalism, and he has built a successful, if not controversial, career as a public speaker, writer, and religious commentator. In the eyes of the world, Frank is accomplished, but he says that there is one thing over and above everything else that gives him the greatest joy and the greatest sense of satisfaction. It is his relationship with his five-year-old granddaughter, Lucy. Every summer, Frank, Frank spends three days a week with Lucy, and the two of them regularly go to the lake near Frank's house, where they press goggles over their eyes and wade into the deep together. They swim until Lucy's body shivers with cold and her lips turn purple. They love to explore the shoreline and the creatures that they find. And Frank says that every time they leave the water, Lucy wails, but my lips aren't all the way purple. They love to be in the water together. Frank told us about one of their excursions when Lucy turned to her grandfather out of the blue, and she covered his face. And she said to her grandfather, when I grow up, I am going to have a granddaughter. And when I have a granddaughter, I am going to tell her everything that you have told me. I will teach her everything that you have taught me. And then she is going to have a granddaughter and she will be told all of the same things. Frank said that in that moment, what flashed across his mind were his many faults. And he thought, how on earth did this happen? How is it that I have managed to pass along something of worth, something of value to this little girl? Something she was going to pass along to her children and grandchildren. As Frank carried her out of the water, her dripping hair pressed to his cheek, he was overcome by a sense of grace. Grace. Like any good theologian, he asked himself, is this what is meant by apostolic succession? Is this how faith is passed along from one generation to the next? I thought of Lucy and Frank's story this week as I read Hebrews chapter 11. This passage is sometimes called the Great Hall of Faith. It is nestled into a larger book, unlike any of the other books found in the New Testament. It is not a narrative account of the life of Jesus. It is not a letter. The book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. A sermon written by an eloquent, verbose preacher. I'm sure you've never encountered one of those before. The preacher is writing to a discouraged and weary congregation and spends 10 long chapters offering a persuasive theological rationale for the faith that they hold. But in chapter 11, the preacher 
changes direction. The preacher becomes a storyteller. You can almost hear him crack open the Old Testament, running his fingers along the pages, unearthing stories from our ancestors that articulate enduring faith. One by one, he names matriarchs and patriarchs of the Hebrew Bible, and like little Lucy, we as readers are invited to wrap our arms around our grandparents and great-grandparents in the faith, to glean from their wisdom and reflect on the hope that guided their lives. The preacher was wise to switch tactics, of course. Rational arguments for faith can really only get you so far. Paulo Coelho once wrote, the power of storytelling is exactly this, to bridge the gaps where everything else has crumbled. The first hearers of this sermon were discouraged. What they once knew to be true, what once had guided their lives, had become less clear and less compelling in light of their circumstances. This is a theme that is acknowledged throughout the book. These first Christians were considered political dissidents for their faith. They were looked upon with great suspicion by their neighbors. They were considered fools for following a crucified rabbi. They were weighing the value of their Christian faith and whether or not it was worthy of persecution. And while our circumstances are different, the angst that they were experiencing does not really seem all that different than the angst that I think many Christians today feel as well. Here in the United States, we are witnessing dramatic cultural and social transformation you don't need me to tell you that. I was ordained to serve as the first global ministry fellow at this church almost 11 years ago to the day. And since leaving Madison Avenue a decade, decade ago, dramatic changes have taken place in our country. Just for some context. Ten years ago, Twitter was new. It had just been born. Ten years ago, the global recession had just been triggered. Barack Obama was president, and Michael Jackson and Prince were still alive. It was a totally different world. The religious landscape was different as well. In 2016, PRRI released a portrait of religious affiliation following an extensive study of religious and denominational identity. And this report articulated something that many of us already knew, that Christianity in the U.S., both Protestant and Catholic, is on the decline. And our numbers have dropped off significantly in the last 10 years. In light of all of these changes, many Christians today, not unlike those first century Christians, wonder 
if the faith we hold is relevant and is worthy of our lives. We wonder, is God at work? Despite the evidence to the contrary, is there a larger divine narrative worthy of our trust? We didn't hear all of chapter 11 read this morning, but in summary, the preacher writes this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And then the preacher tells stories. By faith, Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to God. By faith, Enoch lived a life untouched by the sting of death. By faith, Noah built an ark to save his family from destruction. By faith, Abraham and Sarah followed God to the land of promise. By faith, Moses delivered the people of Israel. By faith, Rahab hid the spies in Jericho. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets administered justice. The preacher names kings and shepherds, judges and military commanders, notorious liars and cowards, and even a prostitute makes the list. Their stories are disparate, but there is a common thread that weaves them together. We heard the, faith, the words spoken over and over again, faith, faith. None of these figures was without flaws, but the preacher reminds us of their willingness to attune their ears to the voice of God. Each of them followed God into an unknown future, holding fast not to a road map, but a set of promises. They held fast to the conviction that the whole of creation is beloved. Beloved. That they were crafted with intention purpose, that they believed they had a critical role to play. They trusted that one day life's burdens would give way to God's power, that pain and suffering is never the end of the story. And these ancestors in the faith trusted that God has a way to make a way when there seems to be no way. This was the foundation of their faith. And they lived in such a manner that their lives were a visible expression of God's promises for the world. These are the stories that you and I have inherited. This is the faith of our ancestors. And this is the faith that God longs to instill within us all. The great hall of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11 is nowhere near complete, of course. When I came to Madison Avenue Presbyterian for the first time, I was interviewing for a new international fellowship being created here at the church. Much to my 
horror and embarrassment, I was 45 minutes late to that interview. Thankfully, the committee was gracious and invited me to work with those early architects of the Global Ministry Fellowship anyway. That afternoon, I learned the first of many lessons I lived or learned living in New York City. I learned never underestimate the power of a parade and its ability to thwart all plans. The entire committee was wonderful, but there was a standout figure for me. It was Alison McEachran. Alison was to me a quintessential New Yorker. She was elegant, articulate, inquisitive, and passionate. When I met Allison, she was at the top of her game, working as the vice president of an advertising firm here in the city. In 2009, she made the decision to leave her job as an exec to begin a career in the nonprofit sector. I imagine her decision brought criticism, and perhaps there were folks confused. But from what I remember from our conversation, Allison felt like she was being led. She didn't know where God was leading her exactly, but she trusted that she had some particular gifts to share in a new context, in a new place. And to this day, her willingness to follow God into an unknown future serves as a beacon to all of us who tend to play it safe. Those of us who tend to live life in the box, and need to be nudged toward a more nimble way of being in the world. She reminds us that listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit can lead us into places we could have never dreamed for ourselves. Alison McKenzie. When I lived in Zambia, I met a 13-year-old boy named Anthony who was a small child when he lost both of his parents to AIDS. Anthony's baby sister died shortly thereafter. Despite the suffering he experienced, Anthony had a gentle, soft heart. One day, he and I were walking through a particularly impoverished community, and I remember asking him, do you ever feel that God has abandoned this place? Anthony clucked his tongue at me. He looked at me earnestly, and he said, God is everywhere, Carmen. God is in your country. God is in my country. God is here, even here. And he gestured toward a group of women, old women bent with age, who are making charcoal. God is even here, he said to me. Anthony gave me a gift, the gift of looking for God's faithful presence, even in the most discouraging circumstances. Anthony reminded me that the burdens that we bear are never the entirety of our story. Never. Tom Long once said it this way, to the naked eye, there is trouble all around. To the eye of faith, However, 
Through the toil and trouble, another reality can be perceived. Grace is everywhere. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Carson Brisson, a brilliant professor at Union Seminary in Virginia. Dr. Brisson has taught hundreds of students to love Greek and Hebrew, the original languages of the Bible. He writes a quarterly essay that, much to my husband's amusement, makes me cry every single time. Dr. Brisson is a poet and a storyteller, and he writes about the world and our creator in achingly beautiful ways. When I am tempted to behave childishly or selfishly, his gentle manner inspires me to play my part with more grace and more devotion. Friends, God has never been without a witness in the world. All of these saints easily make their home among the great cloud of witnesses named in Hebrews chapter 11, Allison, Anthony, and Carson. They inspire us to listen for God's voice of guidance, to see the world with eyes of grace, and to play our part with trust. If we took the time, I know that all of us in this room could easily add dozens upon dozens of names to this list, mentors in the faith who have shown us what it means to hold fast to God's promises and to follow God's leading. Come what may. The world in which we live is chaotic, even grim at times. Yet, God is at work. In every generation, we have seen it. God is at work. Now, the faith we inherit at times must be deconstructed and then reconstructed in order to live authentically that the work is worth it. One day our children and our grandchildren will speak of our legacy. Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton said that a legacy is planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. What seeds are you planting? Friends who are gathered in this space this morning, what seeds of faith do you hold in your pockets that need to be sown? On behalf of a beautiful and broken world, when our children one day speak of us as individuals and as a church, will they speak of our courage or will they lament? our cowardice? Will they speak of our creativity, our tenacity, or will they mourn our preoccupation with our own comfort and security? My hope and prayer is that the stories of our ancestors 
the stories of saints who have come and gone from this place will bolster our own spirits. We need to seize the days that we have been given. And all of us have been charged to live the good news of the gospel. We have been charged to live lives worthy of storytellers. So let us do so with resolve. As the preacher wrote in Hebrews chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run. Run with perseverance the race that has been set before us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And may we do so that our children and our grandchildren and all the earth will know the vast riches of a life lived fully and wholly dedicated to the glory of God. Amen.